You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. We're going inside the huddle with Opera Southwest artistic director and principal conductor Anthony Bereze to look behind the mask of the company's upcoming world premiere of Hector Armienta's opera Zorro. And then... Is that the best NFL intro ever on Sports Specifically Sando, that rendition. <laughs> we figure out which TV station has the most pee-your-pants exciting pre-game NFL theme plus two-minute drill. Quote, animals are not a supposed audience attraction. Well, whoever said that apparently hasn't been to the Berlin State Opera recently. Mm. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, and of course, send us your voice as a voice memo, or you can just email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And in fact, there's not one, but two entries into the listener mailbag this week. Stick around for those a little bit later in the show. Weston Williams, how are you? Oh, I'm doing just fine, George. Just dandy. Not not, not dabbing your tears or wringing out your uh, hanky? I have no idea what you're talking about, George. Okay, great. Ashley, how are you? I am amazing. I am so (laughs) good, you guys. So what? good. What's, what's happening? What's going on? I okay. Once upon a together round, children, I have a story to tell. <laughs> oh, tell what, us, a, tell us a story, Auntie Ashley. Once upon a time, there was a football conference for the NCAA <laughs> called the Southeastern, and that was the predominant conference in the land. And there was one magical team that always won everything. <laughs> Until Saturday, when the University of Alabama, their tide did not roll, and they were defeated by the University of Tennessee Volunteers, 52 to 49. Y'all, I can't, okay, real talk, A, Weston, you're my boy, and I'm so sorry, and I love you like chicken, but also, I grew up in a town where in the local hamburger joint, there was a sign that said, my favorite two teams are Arkansas and whoever beats Alabama. So <laughs> this week, that title goes to the University of Tennessee Volunteers. It's okay. I'm still in deep, deep denial of of the part of this, what is it, six steps of grief, whatever it's called. I'm in denial. So stages, but yes. As far as I know, tide's still rolling. Everything's good. I'm it's just true. sipping some sweet tea in the sun. It, you know? it, it rolled somewhere, but not across the finish line, apparently. because When, when they set off orange fireworks in front of 100,000 people at Neyland Stadium and the place just like erupted. It's just, well, and guys, we've got to talk about the stakes here. Okay. I know I'm in the Midwest and I know people talk about Big Ten football here and you talk about how good it is. And the only thing that I can say to that is that that is adorable. Um, When we talk about Southeastern Conference football, there are like death and taxes truths when it comes to SEC football. And one of those truths is that 
Kentucky and Tennessee are always bad. They're just always bad. And the fact that University of Tennessee is like on a roll, they've been in the top 10. I mean, I talked about them a couple of weeks ago. So it's not just that Alabama lost a football game. It's who they lost it to and how many decades, actual decades, it's been since that happened between these two teams. So that's what makes it such a big deal. Lest we forget that, of course, Tennessee won the very first national championship back in 96 with the likes of Peerless Price. Do you mean... 1896 instead of 1996. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Inspired by the masks, vigilante of Pulp Fiction fame, Zorro is a swashbuckling adventure set in Los Angeles when it was still a colony of Spain. This operatic retelling of the Zorro legend follows Diego de la Vega, esteemed swordsman and Spanish nobleman as he fights for the poor and enslaved in a journey filled with all the romance, swordplay, and humor that is a trademark of the Zorro universe. It's commissioned by Opera Southwest and Fort Worth Opera in a production that will be the fully staged and orchestrated world premiere of the opera as Opera Southwest welcomes back composer Hector Armienta, whose adaptation of Bless Me Ultima was a smash hit at the company in 2018. And we also welcome back Opera Southwest artistic director and principal conductor Anthony Bereze. So tell us about the upcoming Zorro show. First of all, why, why this composer, Hector Armienta? So Hector Armienta first came to our attention. Uh, we did an opera of his in 20, gosh, this would have been 2018, I believe. Uh, Bless Me Ultima, which uh, probably most of your audience has never heard of that story, but it is a story that every single child in New Mexico uh, has read. It's a young adult novel um, that is wildly pop, just hugely popular. And Hector wrote a, uh, you know, got the rights for it and wrote an opera based on it. We decided to to program it. Uh, you know, we do a, one Spanish language opera every year, and this fit mm-hmm. into that in 2018. And uh, it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say that it was the best selling thing we've ever done. Like we had to add a performance. I mean, it's something that was <laughs> really um yeah again like if we did it in in chicago nobody would know what this what this novel was but since every new mexico school child uh you know reads this this young adult novel and grow has been been growing up on it for you know for decades it was something that really resonated so hector wrote this it was a huge huge success he said that he had a couple of other operatic projects in mind that you know that he had and one of them was zorro and we thought well that would be kind of cool you know that's that's even has a bigger reach than than bless me ultima it's a story that most people have some familiarity with it whether from the movies or comic books or you know or novels um so so we decided to take a chance on that and does armienta's compositional style ring any bells is it can it can be compared to anyone else or what's it like i mean yeah i think i think so like he he very consciously is uh especially in this opera is very consciously uh, drawing on a lot of um you know hispanic sounds like he's very consciously drawing on flamenco and and mariachi and also ranchero and and so ranchero music and and so that is like really his his kind of basic mm-hmm. Um, you know, tonal palette would I think would you could probably describe as neo-romantic, but this opera really consciously delves into that kind of flamenco uh, sound, and also sort of uh, it has moments of you know almost like Corn Goldian, you know, swashbuckling adventure, mm-hmm. you know, as as would befit Azoro. 
<laughs> Azoro, you're. I love the you Azoro. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to use the indefinite article with <laughs> Zorro. <laughs> so uh, about Azoro, um, why? What makes this Zoro stand out compared to other Zoros of the um, pop culture? I don't know of fear? another Zoro opera. Okay, I'm, there might be one. I don't know of one. I mean, I will. I will say, like, it, it is a very. I mean, all I'm familiar with is the movie that came out in what, like, 1994. Yeah, yeah, the Antonio Banderas, The Mask of Zorro. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's that's all I'm familiar with. But I do think it would make he makes a great, like, fun operatic hero. You know, sure. Um, uh, and, and certainly, there's a lot of, I imagine, you know, stabbing motions, giving you some um, some uh, competition from the pit for waving around a, a long there, baton. There's more fight choreography in this than anything we've ever done. We had a fight choreographer <laughs> since day one. We have he's there every day, sword fighting. There's a bullwhip that that I think I'm slightly going deaf from. It is the <laughs> lot in a rehearsal room. It is the. It sounds like a gunshot. It is so loud, and it's kind of choreographed to the music. So there's there's lots of fight choreography. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a real sort of yeah. It, it is if you like the Mask of Zorro, uh, then you'll like this for sure. Well, uh, talking about uh, not just the whip, but also like the flamenco and stuff. It sounds like it's a fairly multi-genre experience. What's it like to conduct? What are the challenges associated with that? I mean, the, the, one of the there are a number of musical challenges. First, being that this is an opera that no one really knows. I mean, he they did do a workshop with it in Fort Worth earlier in the year, but he he was revised it extensively. There was no orchestra with that workshop. Um, it was just piano and a and a flamenco guitar. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, the composer and I talked over the summer every day. Uh, you know, the East exchanged many emails about adjusting things on the score. We're still adjusting things. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, last night we had a rehearsal with the with the singers in the orchestra. So the challenge is really it being a piece that nobody knows, and, and but also making musical sense out of it. You know, just just like with anything, you know, you have to make it. A conductor has to make an architecture out of out of stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, just the, the challenge is really just making a, a, you know a, a real architecture with this, and 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 it's rhythmically quite challenging too. Like you know, the singers have to. I have to you know i have to really prompt a lot more than i would if it were say a bohem right yeah uh, who do you say um the, this kind of music is for obviously the previous opera this composer did was based on sort of a young adult story are we talking mm-hmm. family friendly more mature so, so someone asked us about that you know I, I got a radio interview and they or a print interview and it's a family friendly i i would i would go so far as to say if you if you have a child that you think can handle the the movie then they can handle this there's okay sort of, good there, benchmark yeah good reason like, to go back and watch it again <laughs> yeah there's you know there's there's violence and there is there is there you know a couple murders um there there's just others just sort of like torture ish you know scarpia-esque torture mm-hmm. there's a there's a post-coital scene that i think if you brought a young kid to they wouldn't really know what's going on like it's just they sort of re- referenced it you know um there's a kiss you know i, I don't <gasps> i think it's it's probably pg-13 if, if, if PG-13 for excessive is, kissing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, I got you. Yeah, so you sure. had mentioned earlier about how, you know, Bless Me Ultima, it was one of the things that made it so popular is that it served an audience that was very specific to like your community because it was Absolutely. something that everybody culturally knew. Are there are there through lines with this subject matter? Are there any things about this that you're like, oh, we need to do this here specifically? Is it like a DEI thing? Are there like subject matters that specifically serve the audience or is it just a great fit? 
Well, I mean, it's 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 a half in Spanish and half in English, and we have a commitment. Mm. Since we're in since 2012, we we mainly perform in the National Hispanic Cultural Center, and we've sure. and part of that partnership is uh, one of our operas per year is predominantly in Spanish or uh, on a Spanish, uh, you know, a, by a Spanish composer or mm, things mm. like that. So, like, it's you know. It, it it sort of serves this purpose where that has been our you know we've been doing this well before companies patted themselves on the back for hiring one Latino <laughs> right, singer. Right. I'm, sure, no, I'm very serious. I get really sort of annoyed with the whole thing now. You know what? You know we really bristle at the end every time we do a Spanish language opera. We do it in our main house on our main stage yeah, with a full yeah. orchestra. In fact, we just did Frida last year, and Frida is. You know, I think it was premiered with this version, which I think is about eleven instruments, and and then it since then it's been done with like a, this like six instrument version in mm. English. It's always ghettoized and put like on the seconds. Even every company that does it, you look at these companies that 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 pat themselves on the back for doing Frida, and they're putting it in their tiny black box theater. They're they're using a very small orchestral reduction, and right. we and we have just said from the beginning this is important that we have a community that is bilingual completely. Uh, so it, it really is more about serving the 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 needs of our community, and then it sort of right. it has this sort of DEI thing, you know, as a happy coincidence. But we didn't go out to be like, oh, well, we're going to be so you know virtuous and and be so good about this kind of thing. <laughs> it really is just like this. This is like what the community clearly wants. If they're screaming right. that they want this thing, you should probably give them the thing. Meeting well, the needs of an audience, how novel! I know, isn't that weird? <laughs> But we're also opera. fortunate that that our their audience is it's very it, our audience is very obvious. You know, if if I were like in right. in Omaha or you know, not, I mean Omaha is a phenomenal opera, but I don't know that community. I don't know how you would, you right. know, we 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 are very fortunate in that it's a very uh, you know, vibrant Hispanic community here. Uh, beyond 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 the uh, uh, Hispanic community, uh, how how do you think this work fits into the brand of Opera Southwest? And your career as is a, as a sort of a bel, bel canto specialist, you know. It does. Or does it doesn't. It? No, it does. It doesn't in that way. But we, you know, we're fortunate enough now to be up to four operas per year. Right. Um, when I got here, it was two. Mm. Um, and there's not much you can do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it's not. It's, you do bohem once every two decades, right? So right. Like, but now we do have four every year, and we have a specific mission. One has to be a Spanish language. It's just. A, I mean, it's a specific mission. It's one that you know we, I invented, but like. Uh, one has to be a Spanish language opera. One has to be something off the beaten path, you know, preferably some kind of bel canto off the beaten path. One mm -hmm. has to be an opera exclusively for our apprentices with orchestra, like a one act. It, well, orchestra sets costumes, but specifically for the apprentices. And then one opera has to kind of pay for everything. So right. that is that is the that's the the model that we have fallen into. So this doesn't fit into any of you know this fits into that slot that we have that we just want a real you know a well-rounded season I've, I've always said if you know if we ever have a season that's carmen and bohem just just shoot me like i don't you know <laughs> i love both those operas but i mean that's a chapter 11 season if i've ever seen one <laughs> especially if they're doing it with like a single piano and just you know <laughs> <laughs> well i mean yeah at that point yeah if it's so tuned. we'll yeah. see if the economy sticks together and we can continue this four opera thing but oh, fingers you know, crossed yeah we're, we're very hopeful well, you've you've been smart on the economics, right? Because it's a it's a co commission between Opera Southwest and and Fort Worth Opera. What what has that partnership been like? Has it happened before? It's obviously, you know, makes sense on this particular piece. We've co proed before. We when we did Il Postino in twenty twenty, which is the last full show we did before the the pandemic hit. 
it was a co-production with Virginia and Chicago Opera Theater. And Virginia did it first, then we did it, and then Chicago Opera Theater. I mean, it's, we got the sets and costumes. They're just waiting for you guys if, if you want to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, they paid a lot of money for it. So um, uh, th- that, that was the first kind of big uh, co-production we did. This was, this was originally intended to, I think, premiere in Fort Worth with the orchestra, and then the pandemic hit. And then they decided to kind of just make it, a, you know, to make it a workshop and a small performance, um, mm. you know, again, with piano and uh, and guitar. And there were costumes and, and uh, you know, fight choreography, and but no chorus. Um, but of course, if you read the, the Fort Worth papers, they, they, they say that was the premiere. And then they didn't even mention us. Right. So like, but this, <laughs> this is this is like the full the bells and whistles, the full the full the full Monty. Yeah. Uh, moving past Zorro briefly before we wrap it up, what is next for you and for the company in the rest of 2022 and 2023? Uh, so 2022, so after this, you know, we have a New Year's Eve concert that we do every year um, uh, with, with four singers and orchestra and chorus. And then we fulfill our sort of off the beaten path bel canto piece with uh, uh, Rossini's Cantori. And mm-hmm. then we pay for the whole thing at the end with uh, a Turandot. Uh, mm-hmm. That we are doing uh, as a co-production with um, with uh, Opera Delaware and Fargo Moorhead Opera. That's going to be sort of our biggest, uh, you know, money maker. We're, we're, we're sort of putting all our chips in on that. That it's going to be quite a money maker. What about you? Yeah. What are you doing specifically um, uh, beyond uh, the company? What's uh, what's next? Well, this for is you? our 50th anniversary season, so I am doing all of that. I'm I'm yeah. here nice. the whole season, mm. and then I go to uh, Miami to do a Barbara Seville. And other than that, I am just uh, you know quietly expanding my um, my. Uh, so during the pandemic, I started this thing called the Daily Italian Opera Calendar, and I started making a calendar of every single day, uh, the operas, the Italian operas that were premiered that day that we know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, and it, and it just got like ridiculously huge. And there are a couple of <laughs> days that I don't have anything for, but there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of operas. And then I got into operas that we don't know the, the day that they, you know, we know it was like carnival and like, you know, 1721. So from that, the next year, I started a project this year where, um, once a week, I had a team of like musicologists and and conductors and pianists and and uh, we would look at the operas that were premiered that week and we would pick one that we thought might be worthy of excavation and I would and then we would decide based on you know the history of it and criticisms um, uh, which you know which opera of that week was worth excavating and then we would pick one opera and we would pick like one such like whether it's a trio or an aria or duet. And then, and then I would like sort of make a score of it and make like a sort of MIDI mock-up file. And we kind of put all of this uh, online uh, on, a, on a Google Drive. And I made it about halfway through the year. And then I just, it was just exhausting. So I just- <laughs> Your I brain have, melted. <laughs> yeah. And so now- Where I'm, is I'm, this? Well, I, I'll give <laughs> I you guys a link. It. And anybody, anybody who wants uh, access to this, I will absolutely provide access. They could just email me at anthony at anthonybrazer.com. Um, so I am- I am I am uh, I'm just basically putting together some of these operas that I think are really interesting. Pacini, for for example, is mm-hmm. I think a, a completely um, uh, ignored composer. There's this composer Lauro Rossi that wrote this hilarious opera called Dottor Bar, uh, no Dottor Bobolo in the 1840s, and it's the first instance that I can see of an Italian opera that has an entire section in five four. This is trio, 
that's just oh. straight up in five four. Mm. And then right. my, I'm gonna really, I know Jordan wants to move on, but I'm gonna really put a tiny <laughs> plug in for my my total passion project, which is a, a two operas by a composer named um, uh, Pietro Raimondi, who was a very famous uh, composer around the time of Verdi, and he was famous for being uh, a big contrapoint composer, and he wrote was famous for writing three oratorios, Jacob, Putifar, and Giuseppe, that were played, you know, each individually, and then played all at the same time. Jeez. And then yes. the last thing he wrote before he died was two operas, one comic and one uh, tragic. What, the comic is called uh, the, the, the Four Rustics, based on, a, I think, a, a Goldoni play. And then the, the tragic one is called Adelazia. And again, these are to be played you know, one at a time, and then literally at the same time. You have two orchestras playing two different kinds of music. It's something like something out of eye. This is from like the, That's the very 1850s. Charles it's come. It is wild. And he finished most of the first. He actually he finished the skeleton score of the whole thing and finished orchestrating most of the first act. But like putting this thing together, I was in Rome this summer and like and in libraries in, in Naples, just just finding like bits of this, and it is just. Completely consumed me. To, I could, it's I could it's a hard life, eyes. isn't it, it Anthony? It's it's. Well, I just I don't sleep a lot because I'm thinking about this. <laughs> Remind so. us when and how to catch Zorro. Zorro is going to be this coming week. We open on uh, Sunday, and we go Sunday, uh, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Um, you can get tickets at operasouthwest.org for performances only. And um, and then it hopefully will be broadcast next year on the WFMT uh, awesome. radio broadcast series. Thanks again to Tony Bereze for being on the show. Always uh, fun to have him around. Quick little fantasy football update from Tobias Ooh. Wright. He says, we sit with a commanding lead going into the Monday night football game. That says we're taping now. And we are the team in our matchup with a player remaining, so our lead should widen, which makes us five and one. Oof. Solidly oh. second place, but the first place team, Devan's Dukes, led by Opera Philadelphia general manager David Devan, has a slight mm. lead and is mm. likely going to lose the matchup tonight. Mm. So I might wake up tomorrow, Tuesday morning, two days ago, when you're listening to this, halfway through the fantasy season in first place. Oh, fingers crossed, George. I can, I can almost taste that victory belt. Reaching into the listener mailbag, we have a voice memo to share. PJ in New York City sent us this from the hallowed halls of Lincoln Center. Hey, kids at Opera Box Score. This is a new listener and first-time caller. My name is PJ. I'm here at the Metropolitan Opera in between acts at Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of Mitzensk. I have never seen anything like this production. It is so visually interesting. There is not a moral person on that stage, as I'm sure you well know. I can see why Stalin was pretty upset with this thing, but the production is great here at the Met. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. I've seen all the operas so far this season, and this is by far my favorite. Loving everything that I'm seeing, and I thought I might just report to you wonderful people keep doing what you're doing i love opera box score i'm listening to it now regularly just good work and uh thanks for listening thanks so much pj for getting your voice heard i would love to see that production of lady Macbeth. oh me it too awesome 
And also, uh, I have to really commend you for, you know, uh, sending us that memo in the what sounds like the lobby <laughs> of the Met. As a as the person who does the sound editing, using that background audience babble, mm, very Rich. nice touch. Well played. And also then in the listener mailbag, Franklin in Orlando writes, I attended Festival O in Philly last month on the recommendation of your podcast, I flew in from Orlando and was delayed about 24 hours because of the hurricane, Hurricane Ian. He says, I missed my Otello tickets, but was able to catch the matinee on Sunday from the lobby. Kind of like you, Weston, watching uh, (laughs) Hitler. Franklin says, on my last night, I stopped at a bar and one of the company's administrators happened to be sitting next to me. We got to chatting. He asked how I'd heard of the festival. I made sure to blame Opera Box for for getting me to fly to Philadelphia the day after a hurricane blew through. Uh, well, I mean, that's the OBS bump for you, you know? That's, it can't be yes, denied. That's what I was going to say. I was like, talk about an OBS bump. First of all, Franklin, hope you're okay. Hope the flooring yeah. in your home survived. My goodness. That was something to think about. But yes, I mean, I am I am jealous of the people that got to go to the O Festival because I did not get to. So yeah, I mean, I've his his stuff seems to sort of fall in line with the things that we heard about feedback and things that were great about it. So well done. Way to get to Philly. Way to way to do it through inclement weather, inclement being a, a very gentle description of what you guys have experienced. Can I can you tell that I'm hugging you in my heart? I'm like hugging you really hard right now, Franklin. <laughs> and now where the histories of music and sports collide. Boom! Sportsando! Sportsando is our segment where opera collides with sports in the world of history. This is Ashley Hardgrave's genius baby, which I'm going to take a crack at this turn. It's football season. It means college football. It means the NFL, of course. There's a whole bunch of stations which host the many NFL games during the week, and they each have their own bespoke introduction. We're going to run through those and deconstruct them and then pick our individual favorites. The first one is, uh, this is the Amazon Prime video sports. Ooh, newcomer to the game. Relative newcomer to the game, yeah. Amazon has entered the chat. It has, and it sounds like this. This is one of those moments where I lament that we don't have a video option to our show anymore because as that played, there was just little dancing in all of the squares. Everybody was really enjoying themselves. Yeah, that was a that was a prime video sports theme uh, written by Pinar Toprak, who also wrote music and themes for Captain Marvel and Fortnite. Oh. <laughs> Fort- so this is the this is the kids. Uh, this is the Marvel generation's uh, sports theme. She That's great. She relates to the youths. Um, the thing that cracks me up is that it's. It's basically holding up a mirror to all of the other things we know as NFL themes. It's got little elements of all of the songs that came before it, mm-hmm. uh, which is unsurprising, but also charming to listen to. But it's very 
very much like Amazon's marketing for their NFL broadcasts. Yes. It's very in your face. I get 17 mm-hmm. emails every Thursday. It's Thursday. Are you going to watch football? Are you going to do it on Amazon Prime? I'm like, sir, <laughs> calm down. Sir, calm down. <laughs> yes, I will watch football. Maybe not with you, but I will. What do you, what do you think, Weston? I think this is, uh, I mean, uh, this is, I have listened ahead a little bit. I think this is probably the weakest theme of the ones we have before. Uh, I I think that when you're talking about, you know, the connection between opera and sports, what do you want in the music? What do you want the music to reflect? Do you want to reflect kind of the text? It's the Monteverdian thing, right? (laughs) Where the text of what's going on has to be reflected in the music. Obviously, there's no text in these intros, but you need to be able to really represent the aspects of sports the struggle the heroism i get the heroism with the with the sort of brassy theme i don't really get much in the way of struggle i don't get much in the way of um that sort of like gladiatorial sweaty sort of uh uh tension you know uh, okay thesaurus i'm into it (laughs) gladiatorial um but yeah i think this one's uh the weakest of the ones that we're going to hear but i think it's a good example of what this genre sounds like Oh, up next is the NFL Network's Thursday Night Football. Sounds like this. NFL Network. I wasn't sure if it was Carol of the Bells to begin with. <laughs> I mean, I'm not Futurama it's... personally, but you know that might just be what I watch. Yeah, so uh, this one is, uh, the actual title of this is called Run to the Playoffs, subtitled theme to Thursday Night Football, and this was written by David Robidoux. Oh, no one I know. <laughs> I don't know why I said oh like that. This one has for me it's got a lot of turns. You know, you start with the with these like chimes. Which yeah, that could be are we running through a castle late to a ball? Like what are we doing? And then there's a little more of that sort of brassy fanfare. And then mm. I'll tell you that final drop when the like official drum beat comes in with the snares and the I was like, oh this hits. I will say, I will say the that part that done Dun, 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 is is almost like uh, note for note the uh, Goosebumps TV show intro, and I can't not hear it. Um, oh. Maybe a less relevant criticism, but that's where my mind goes. I, I think that's where your age is, Weston. That's where it is. <laughs> the third network is definitely the far and away best known. Of course, Monday Night Football started on ABC. It's now on ESPN. Everybody can sing along. piece uh is written from written by a guy named johnny pearson uh this song is actually originally from the 1970s (laughs) you don't say (laughs) this song is called heavy action let's start there uh and what's crazy about this is it's really it's not just the espn theme it's a pretty established sports tune so in the uk it's the theme for the superstars and then in the u.s it's the theme for both abc and espn's monday night football i encourage you listeners to go and listen to the full-length version of the actual song heavy action it is funky it hits it is very fun to listen to (laughs) we'll probably get it posted on our website if i can sweet talk george enough to do it it's the only 
intro in all of our selection, which is in a major key. And I think that's really hmm. quite brave. Yeah, that's, that's right? true. It's very easy to play in the in the minor here, you know, as you're trying to like set up aggression and tension. But to, but to be in the major, it's just in C major, straight up. In many ways, it reminds me of a lot of early sports music writing. Because I, I was thinking about this and trying to relate it to opera a little bit more. Um, you know, there's not a lot of great sports operas out there. There are a few. Uh, and then, of course, there's some some upcoming ones like Champion at the Met, which I'm sure is going to be fantastic. But there ha- there isn't much of a pre- uh, like a established style. So you kind of have to turn to like early film music. Uh, I really think of um, the scene in the beginning of the 1927 German silent film uh, Metropolis <laughs> with music by Gottfried Huppertz. Uh, there's a scene... Near the beginning. I, I think Ashley's choking on her tongue. <laughs> There's a scene near the beginning where you have uh, the main character uh, running on a track, uh, and he <laughs> is a member of the upper class, right? He is refle- He is up literally high above the clouds running on this track, and you have this, this fast sort of like... Um, uh, positive major key theme with uh, twiddling uh, flutes and uh, and piccolos. Uh, it's really the sense of like uplifting and going faster and pushing yourself. It's very much reflecting that sort of ancient Greek ideal of sports, which is something we can relate to in opera because, of course, opera is derived from ancient Greek tragedies. Uh, I know Ashley is laughing, but this is what I was I thinking this about this week. I just, quit the show. Just, just oh my stop. god. But Wesley, just just stop there. No, no, it please don't stop. It it just reinforces my love for you when you do this. Um, it makes me happy. I I did not go in that same direction. Um, I didn't. One of the things that's interesting for me about this one, especially the version that you showed to us, George, is that I don't know if in that performance somebody like held a fermata in the beginning, but it doesn't rhythmically line up with. <laughs> What the original is, because it's got this driving pulse, and it goes ba 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 ba. It's like it's more on, and there's a weird like long extension in the beginning of the one that you played for us. And I'm like, first of all, is everybody reading the score correctly? Um, but yes, I I love this one for its nostalgia. But seriously, listeners, I mean, whether you're thinking about German silent films or you just like a bop, I encourage you to check out the full length version of this because it'll blow your mind. The fourth clip is from NBC's Sunday Night Football. Of course, Monday night used to be the big game. And then when NBC took over part of the NFL, they were able to shift the, the big game of the week was to Sunday night. It sounds like this. Like I hear the drone in the, in the bass there, and I literally want to pee my pants with excitement. <laughs> I, ca- I can't wait to just watch grown men just hit each other very hard. Well, well, when I when I was uh, listening to these, I was like, I was trying to figure out like if I had to define the style. Uh, I, I kept saying like these all sound like John Williams with a rock band, uh, and it turns out this one is actually John Williams. <laughs> It is actually John Williams. The song is entitled Wide Receiver, and it was written by John Emma F. and Williams. Sounds like sounds like prequel trilogy era John Williams, if I'm if I'm picking up on the the, the light notes properly. <laughs> 
Um, but I do think that there is something to this. And I do want to talk about this a little bit here, because obviously, what is what do we want uh, in sports music? We want that inspirational quality. And so I think what a lot of people turn to is that big sweeping brass, the big sort of grand, uh, uh, not too complicated harmonies. Um, and you turn towards the music that sounds like John Williams, who in turn was honestly uh, aping from Aaron Copeland, especially like Fanfare for the Common Man, right? Mm, yeah. It's this ideal idea that these people are common people coming together, pushing through, overcoming some sort of obstacle, whether it's running, whether it's another team, whether it's golfing, presumably. I don't know if they play this one with golf, um, but uh, it would probably amp everyone up if they did. Um, and I, I think that there's something really cool about how that that sort of like uh, generational line from like uh, mid-century uh, American nationalistic music through to the present day of all these football themes. It really is kind of the operatic soundtrack of our time in popular culture. I have a mildly different take, but yes, um, I'll, I'll guess, Angie. It's like f football players, professional athletes in general – are the closest thing that we have in modern day to gladiators. So we often like we put this air of heroism on them. If we are sports right. fans, we are, we are putting our hopes and dreams for the evening into whether or not they will succeed in their conquest. And, uh, and this really does have, like you said, a lot of heroic themes, but for mm -hmm. me, it's not about common people coming together. It's about superhuman people coming together to go through these insane physical challenges that like your average Joe or your average mm -hmm. Ashley are clearly, Really not going to be a part of um and the thing that i love about this one besides the heroism that's written to it is like i think about football players being a little bit badass you know they're they're, right. they're tough mrfers and and there's a there's a strut that happens when they kind of come out in the in the field at the very beginning doing warm-ups before the big game and this the tempo of this is the perfect strut tempo. It's a little slow, but let's face it, those guys are huge and built like refrigerators. So like their strut tempo is going to need to be a little slower than mine. It's sort of like the equivalent of like the tenor coming on stage and you hear the key the aria is in and you're like, oh, they're going to make him sing some real high notes, huh? You know, it, it's, <laughs> yes. it's that sort of anticipation. Into it. It's in B flat minor, as it turns out. <laughs> clip, well. clip, clip number five is uh, from CBS. I'm mean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much to say about this one um, that we haven't already said about the other ones, except that I think the what is it, electric bass solo is pretty neat. I love it. I mean, <laughs> pretty neat. <laughs> Is that the That's best how you I would describe do? it. I don't really Gee have willikers. any. I don't have any like Gottfried Hubert's references to make here. I just think it's a neat, <laughs> neat, uh, neat solo on like, top of I the just, main I theme. Just, I get sweaty when I hear that. Like, <laughs> it's called it's called Posthumous Zone. It's from a now defunct electronic band called ES Posthumous. Um, and here's a very interesting piece of trivia about this before I hand it back to you, George. Is that so? This is the CBS uh, NFL theme. On the years in which the Super Bowl is going to be hosted on CBS, the Friday before that game, The Price is Right uses this song as their theme song. <laughs> That's great. That is, Keep that it in the is family. That is super. And I, I love The Price is Right. 
theme song as well. There's something about that mix of heavy rock bass and the wailing brass and that little just scream, that wail of, of, of nothingness is just so Okay, here, here's your reference. It reminds me of friend of the show, composer David T. Little. There Boom. you go. There, you there go. it is. Perfectly, perfectly. Well put. Make, make that money, David. Last one, of course, <laughs> it's got to be Fox, the NFL on Fox. Here's what it sounds like. I mean, I, I think it is the most complex. You've got those contrapuntal violin mm-hmm, descant mm-hmm, there. Yeah. You do have a bit of that uh, guitar bass line. Trumpets, perhaps a bit overused in that sort of fanfare-like figure. But well, it's a, I don't and know here's about the thing. Ah, it's 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 pretty on on the nose. Uh, and so this one is actually the title of this is literally called NFL on Fox, uh, and it was composed by Scott Schreier in the '90s. He is also uh, he's a jingle writer, and he was also responsible for some of the music behind NHL and NASCAR programming. So here's the thing: if you think that all this heavy brass and percussion and like the running to war in the beginning theme it reminds you of superheroes, that is by design. So mm. in the '90s, when he was getting ready to to put this out into the world. The president wanted a new NFL theme, the president of Fox Sports. And so he got an earworm while he was waiting for a Batman ride at a California theme park. (laughs) And so when the network tapped Schreer, this jingle writer, to write this, he was told that the vibe for this new tune was Batman on steroids. (laughs) I love that. All right. It's time to pick our favorites. Weston, give us your favorite. My favorite is going to have to be the one we just heard, the uh, the Fox theme, the NFL on Fox, because for me, it really balances everything I was talking about. It's got the drama. It's got this this uh, physicality uh, to it. The sense you, you get the inspiration like you do in the others. But what dominates is the sense of uncertain outcome of the contest, which is not something I get from any of the others. Uh, I think that when I'm watching sports, what I am participating in is the uncertainty. I'm I'm seeing the journey play out in front of me. Like, like if I if I go to an opera, if it's an opera I've seen 50 times before, I, I'm not there to hear the recording I have in my head, right? Mm-hmm. I'm there for the flesh and blood of what could go wrong, what could go more right than I could have ever expected. The the way this theme changes the harmonies up on you in unexpected ways, the uh, the cool violin counterpoint, uh, there's some some modulations in there that, that's more complex than you would expect out of like a random bed of you know uh, uh ashley's laughing at me again but you know this is this Couldn't is the kind of more, thing this is this is what i want in uh if we're talking about expressing what you want in a sport the text of the uh, of the production so to speak this is the one you want that's what my pick for my favorite ashley how about you you know, I go back to my thought about these, you know, people as modern day gladiators and that sort of the heroism behind it. And there's I am a I am a sucker for football, which if listeners know other parts of my personality, doesn't always seem to totally match up, but it's there. And uh, and and this is just something that I really 
enjoy. I I will watch any given Sunday to this day, problematic as it may be, for this nice little white liberal lady. Oh my god, I will watch it and get emotional and weep <laughs> and it is I I get swept up in the emotional manipulation both of music and that film. Um <laughs> And for me, again, it goes back to like the badassery of those gladiators. And again, that NFL on NBC theme, not only because it's Mm. written by our OG Big Daddy John Williams, but there is just something about like the cool, calm, collected assuredness and the strut tempo of that Mm. that I cannot, I can't get that out of my brain. And that is what I associate with like the excitement of a football game. And for me, it's the CBS show. I don't even like CBS as a network, but there's something about that (laughs) intro with the wail of that guitar, the rhythm, the rock feel, and that classical brass section, which just, for me, brings it home. I'm thinking Two Minute Drill might need a new intro. This just in. The Two Minute Drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. An article from the Washington Classical Review decries the lack of opera at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. In 2011, WNO, Washington National Opera, merged with the center as a cost-saving measure. Since then, the number of opera productions has gone down and the number of big-budget Broadway music musicals have gone up. Quote from the article, uh, from in the upcoming 2022-23 season, WNO, has been limited essentially to only two months at the Opera House. That's from Charles T. Downey, who wrote the article. Kennedy Center will follow these performances by Hamilton, Wicked, Lion King, Les Mis, Moulin Rouge, Dear Evan Hansen, 1776, (gasps) Guys and Dolls, Sunset Boulevard, and Kiss of the Spider Woman. That's a lot of musicals. The Berlin Staatsoper says it will make changes to its new ring cycle, directed by Dmitry Charnyakov, following outcry from PETA over the 30 live guinea pigs and rabbits used in the production. A Peter's, uh, sorry, <laughs> a PETA spokesperson who is ironically named Peter, we'll skip past that, uh, he says, animals are not in this world to be exposed to a frightening and unusual scenario of loud music and bright lights on stage and to be transported back and forth as a supposed audience attraction. The Staatsoper says that the dialogue with PETA was productive and that it would think differently about the use of animals in the future. Conductor and alleged secret Restaurateur Valery Gergiev has been expelled from the Royal Academy of Music in Stockholm. The board said he, quote, was excluded on the basis of his unwillingness to take a stand against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a position that the Academy has demanded of him in view of his well-documented close relationship with President Vladimir Putin. And, quote, Gergiev had been a member of the institution since 2011. Faith Gay and Francesca Zambello have created a $3 million endowment for the brand new Faith E. Gay and Francesca Zambello Chair in Social Justice at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. The professorship will be awarded to a scholar whose, quote, academic focus is on economic, social, and cultural rights, including religious liberty in support of freedom, equality, and personal autonomy. Pretty Yende is the latest opera singer to be awarded the Order of Arts and Letters by France's cultural minister for her contributions towards the development of arts in France. Crunching the numbers, Santa Fe Opera gets that OBS bump as the company confirmed that it just had the second best year of ticket sales in history. 
closing last season at $9.5 million in ticket sales and $9.7 million in fundraising. In trade news, Jonet Solomon has been named to Pittsburgh Opera's board of directors. Solomon is a founding member and the executive director of National Opera House, a nonprofit organization working to restore and maintain the historic Pittsburgh headquarters of the National Negro Opera Company, NNOC, the first African-American opera company in the United States. The Finnish National Opera has appointed Thomas de Malay Bourges as its artistic director. He's set to commence his tenure on August 1st of next year and is contracted for four years through the end of the 27th season. The contract comes with an optional three-year extension. Good job, Tomas. Among his first assignments will be to play repertory for the 25-26 season. Carlos Chasson is retiring from the stage after a 40-year career. The 72-year-old Spanish bass baritone will retire performing La Comedia e Infinita in Valencia. Exit stage right, Dame Angela Lansbury died last week at 97. Her long career included leading roles in the musicals Gypsy, the opera Sweeney Todd and The King and I, as well as the hit Disney films Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Beauty and the Beast. And on this day, October 17th, in 1727, it was the first performance of Bach's Trauerrode, or the Funeral Cantata. 1729 brought us the birth of French composer and co-creator of the opera comique genre, Pierre-Alexandre Monsigny. 1771 marks the first performance of the 16-year-old Mozart's opera, Ascanio in Alba. 1875 was the first performance of a one-act, two-part opera. Here we go, let's get this out. Don Sanche ou le Château d'Amour by a 14-year-old Franz Liszt. <laughs> 1861 brought us the first performance of Offenbach's operetta, Apothecaire et Periquet in France. And in 1891, one for the home team, it was the first performance of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the second employer of mine to be mentioned in our drill tonight. <laughs> 1855 brought us the first performance of, Pren sorry, excuse me, Krennic's Palace Athene Weint in Hamburg. 1896 brought us the birth of American tenor and film actor Frank Forrest. 1924 brought us the birth of Italian baritone Rolando Panarai. And in 1978, contralto Marian Anderson receives the Congressional Medal of Freedom from American President and noted peanut farmer Jimmy Carter. And that's your two-minute drill. I can see us waking, the breakers breaking, the seagulls squawking. Ooh, ooh, I do me baking, then I go walking with you. That was Angela Lansbury singing By the Sea from Stephen Sondheim's opera Sweeney Todd. I, I have not been, this is, this is absolutely serious. I have not been this sad over the death of a celebrity in, in music since David Bowie died in, in 2016. Angela Lansbury was like one of the artists I grew up with. Bedknobs and Broomsticks was like on mm -hmm. repeat in our household. Same with Beauty and the Beast. And it's just it is so sad. She had such a great career in musicals, in opera, in television, of course, as well. And she will truly, truly be missed. 
I will say, George, you did. Uh, I think it's a great clip. I think she's a great performer singing uh, in Sweeney Todd. But you, I did hear you call Sweeney Todd an opera, which means, according to Washington Classical Review, you're part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think this is an interesting little article. Uh, obviously, um, I, I think that uh, this is a very specific uh, situation. Obviously, WNO was paying rent uh, to uh, in order to put on its productions before the merger in 2011. Now they don't have to. Um, and there was uh, a lot of, I think, optimism surrounding that. Um, but I think mostly due to the pandemic, maybe not so much uh, deliberate sidelining of opera. There has still been this decrease of operas being uh, being performed there, uh, and I do think that it is worth examining the uh, the increasing encroachment of musicals into the opera space. Uh, already here, even in our hometown, Lyric Opera of Chicago, uh, I think Fiddle on the Roof was great. Uh, I think I really liked uh, the West Side Story when I first saw it, but here they are both in the same season. One True. of them in sort of even Fiddler in sort of the main stage sort of um, area of of lyric, not tacked at the end like all of their musicals usually are. Um, and I think this is a trend to watch out for. I mean, uh, I do think there's something to be said for opera companies having the resources to put on particularly classical musicals with full orchestras that just isn't done anymore. But where do we draw that line? Where do we say, like, at what point does it become too much of a draw to be like, the musicals are the ones making the money. Why are we bothering preserving the opera anymore? Well, the other thing we don't want to make a habit of is using live animals on stage. Actually, I've seen a lot of weird <laughs> stuff in my time. This, I think, takes the uh, kibble. <laughs> oh, gross. I hate it. Well, I mean, in terms of animal welfare stories, it's really thoughtful of them to try to knock Dr. Oz off the jerk pedestal oh, for oh, the week. Oh, <laughs> oh, God. I just, I cannot handle any more talk about mistreatment of animals. It's just, it's too upset. But also, okay, this is the question I have about this. You're right. doing the ring. Why in the <laughs> trying World? to find a swear word that's not a yes, swear word? Yes. Why are you using guinea pigs in a ring production? <laughs> what role literally are they? They're guinea pigs. Uh, Those uh, live in an eight-year-old's basement. Like what? I have not seen it. My guess would be uh, they're going to be the Nibelheim, you know? The Nibelheim, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love that the, the Peter spokesperson... This is uh, Peter Hufkin. He says, animals are not in this world to be exposed to a frightening and unusual scenario of loud music and bright lights. In other words, Wagner. Yeah, <laughs> true. I think I think this is this is definitely something that's worth examining. And I, 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 I will say also, I, I think guinea pigs and rabbits, as long as they're being taken care of probably a little bit more resilient than, say, the elephants and camels that used to grace our fair. stages for Aida fair. for every fair, single fair. production. Yes. Very, very um, I, and speaking of production, what what happened at the production table as they were putting together sort of the artistic <laughs> plan to bring this show together and somebody was like, I got it guinea pigs like how do you get there clearly you, you don't watch there? enough uh reggie yeah. theater ashley that's your problem <laughs> you're ashley. thinking in a little box <laughs> i'm pretty fine with it wrap it up for us with 30 seconds on the uh zambello slash gay story 
Uh, yeah, no, it's it's very interesting for me uh, in terms of this week's drill, because not one but two of my employers were mentioned in it, both Chicago Symphony Orchestra <laughs> and Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. Um, here's what's great about this is that Pritzker Law, which is the T14 law school at Northwestern, they've been working really hard on a lot of inclusion initiatives and really trying to find places in which their voices can be expanded to speak on behalf of others. Uh, and it's so funny that we were speaking just a couple of days ago to uh, to Catherine Lewick and talking about how awesome Zambello is. And then turns out they're even more awesome than that because she and her partner are funding this initiative at a really high profile law school to instill a faculty member who who will be focused and dedicated to this type of work. So not only am I excited about this because I happen to work there and I'm going to see this person in the halls and maybe Zambello if I'm really lucky that day. Um, but it's just, it's, they're doing the things that we're wanting opera companies to do, which is find ways to put their money where their mouth is mm -hmm. in terms of expanding audiences and expanding voices. So I'm really excited to see this happen. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call to take you to wherever you're going next, Weston Williams. My good call is that I get to be Oliver uh, this week and tell Ashley that she did mess up in the On This Day segment. You said Fine. that the opera Change au le Château de Moor by Franz Liszt premiered in 1875. It in fact premiered in 1825. Uh, so, wow. wow, is this how Oliver feels all the time? Ooh. The righteous indignation. Wow. I was out last week uh, because I was attending the memorial service for uh, the former principal flutist of the Chicago Symphony, Donald Peck. He, mm. he sat in that seat for 42 years and I knew him on a personal level, not because I was a flute player, but because I got to work with him through my time working in music school administration. And he was such a... He was such an interesting, wonderful human, not just from an incredible talent perspective. His recordings are, in fact, eternal, and they are the Bible for flute players. But the thing that was so interesting for me was to see the generations of CSO fans and CSO musicians coming together to celebrate the the life and the work of this person. And I thought, how cool is it to have this, like, window into the legacies and the histories of this music and this art form that we love so much. And and Don Peck was also a noted big fan of singers. He had very strong opinions on singers that he liked working with, Kiri Takanawa, and some that he didn't, <laughs> names will not be mentioned here. Um, but it was just so interesting to be part of that overlap and part of that community. And when you're thinking about how much we love this art form, how cool is it to be a part of this part of its timeline in history. Mm. So for all of us that are fans, including you listeners at home, you're part of a really interesting moment in musical history, and I want you to celebrate that somehow this week. And definitely keep your eye on this space as well as we're working to get more instrumentalists on this very show. Bad call this week. The Braves are playing at Philadelphia in the MLB playoffs. As you may know, one of the Braves players, Marcel Ozuna, uh, had some... Issues driving under the influence and oh those Phillies mm. fans, they know how to push the right buttons over the weekend. They start chanting D-U-I when Marcel <laughs> is on the field. They are literally the worst people on the face of the planet, those Philly fans. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. 
Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Opera gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, and our guest, Anthony Bereze, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, but not about musicals, okay? We're back with an all-new show next week when on-site opera general and artistic director Eric Einhorn joins us for our annual Halloween spooktacular. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more da-da-dum, da-da-dum. Join us! Da-da-dum, 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 da